0: Part Six of Thorstein of the Mere by W. G. Collingwood. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Fourteen: The Finding of Thurston Water. Now the story leaves those great kings and their wars to tell of Thorstein Swainson, and how he went up the River Crake, and how he found the great water at the river head, the same that old folk call Thurston Water, and we mostly call Coniston Lake from the name of our village hard by it. In the year after the ravaging of Scotland, Thorstein was eleven winters old, and a great lad, sturdy at all games of strength, and skilful enough in all kinds of work that a lad was set to do. He could catch a nag on the fell and ride it home through the heather, make an arrow and shoot it to the mark, handle the smith's tools or the woodwrights, swim and row, wrestle and race with his brothers and often beat them and always beat the thralls' boys. Most of all, he took pleasure in going about with the herds, to look after the beasts and the sheep on the summer hills, and when they were once out and away, he would egg them on to take him farther, to see the little dells and winding valleys on either side of the crate, as if he might find there something of the great world which he had heard about, and longed to wander through. It was nigh upon seven years since the wild men of the fells had made their last raid, and carried off the thrall's son. But still, Swain would often warn his boys to keep within sight of home, and bid them stay by their mother if he himself were abroad. But he might as well have warned the smoke not to go out of the chimney, for northern blood stirred in the lads, and Thorstein often looked down the Firth to seaward, and wished he were big enough to go Viking in a ship of his own. Orm said he would go with him, if it were trading he meant, and thought that they might make a deal of money by selling the thralls children upon which thorstein hit him in the face and said thou shan't get our little may queen for one and he spoke no more of his plans to orm hundi was a better friend to thorstein and they talked a to deal together of the travels they should take and the deeds they should do there were those great mountains in the far distance always beckoning to them peopled with giants and fairies had not their father often told them of the stone man that kept the road beyond Grasmere, and had they not the dim remembrance not easily let die of the red giant they knew by hearsay of wide lakes among the fells lying all alone for the first adventurer to take and hold the beck that flowed through their fields and the greater leaven that they could see from the howe or from legbarrow winding far away among the hills came down so the welshman said out of wide waters full of fish, and haunted by fowl in countless flocks. And as they sat on the rocks at Craikmouth, when the tide was low, moulding clay arrowheads in the rune-shaped cliffs and chinks of the smooth rock, they wondered what troll or fairy had been there with chisel and mallet, and what more marvellous marvel there might be to find in the unknown wilds beyond. Crake, Cragiog as their Welsh called it, the Rocky River, came down night and day sometimes fierce and swollen sometimes faint and shrunken but always singing over its rocks the same song of enticement if we could only track the beck they said and find the great water and take the fish and fowl and build a house by the shore and make a boat so at last the wish grew into a plan and the plan into a purpose when nobody was looking they were to slip away follow the crake to its mere, take the land about it, and make a backward bigging of their own. They filled a bag with meal, took their knives in their belts, and set off one morning early, as though they were going for a day with the shepherds. But where the fields ended, they took the path to the outlying folds, and when they were near the folds, they turned through the woods to the river, so that they might not be seen, and scrambled for a great way up the stony channel it was only half filled because as often happens in those parts the spring had been dry and the rainy weather was yet to come on after the days began to shorten for a while it was easy work there is a flat shore on the left hand and they could run over the shingle even where the water went swiftly and fell in eddies and foam over rock ridges but soon the hills on either side close in the banks are steep the river foams beneath thick trees which spread their branches making the squirrel's bridge overhead thus it is even nowadays but in yon old times in many places great firs had fallen right across the deep channel or huge oaks had lost their hold of the rocky bank from the very weight of age and had rolled into the torrent to be weirs and dams that held the water and flooded the banks so that what with the swamp wherever there was a bit of flat shore and what with the rock walls or the slippery sodden tufts of moss and fern wherever the gill banks were brant, the lads made but little way and whoever has stood upon spark brig and looked up bank and down bank and dreamt over a time when all the mills and houses were unbuilt and the land uncleared and nothing but wild timber dank and dense filled the dale with the logs that rotted where they fell and the brambles and creepers that matted the growing trunks together and wild bulls and wild boars, wolves and cats, hagworms and lizards, and maybe a bear or two, tenanted the place. He will know what the adventure of those two boys was like. And whoever has fought his way up one of our moorland gills, where the land is still rough, will know how they stumbled over the shallows and scrambled over the boulders, and waded the mires and swam the dubs, as they came through the jaws of crake, and out into the easier ground by the Eyot beneath Lowick green as it is now. There, if the river was less rough, the trees were still thick and the banks steep, and on the right hand the fells seemed to come nearer, and standing out through the black fir-trees high overhead, white brows of crag seemed to frown and nod above them as they sat on a great stone in mid-stream to take their breath. The kingfishers flitted past, blue flashes in the green gloom, where a ray of sunshine came in through the vault of trees overhead and pierced the brown water they could see beneath mossy rocks fringed with fern little dippers running over the bottom among the trout and as free as if they were on dry land for all the rushing of the water now and again a wild animal ran down to drink and started back crashing into the wood but there was no sign of houses nor of men dwelling in this uncouth wilderness they toiled on again "'mounting the stream where it breaks over long-drawn ledges "'around a rocky eyot, at a sharp bend, "'and through a swampy tarn, as it was then, "'till they came to the spot where Lawick Bridge now stands. "'It was high noon. "'They sat down on the steep bank above the swamp, "'and taking handfuls of the meal from their bag, "'soaked it with the clear fresh water, and made their dinner. "'When it was done,' said Hundy, "'Well, old forge ahead!' how much farther for my part i call the shepherd's tales all welsh lies there's no great water that we can see only this dirty puddle and we shall have to work enough to get home before supper-time down the screes we've climbed and this waste of rubbish nay said thorstein the beck must come from somewhere and i mean to see the end of it what and sleep in a tree like a squirrel why not if i must thou slugger bed the nights are short and warm enough Well, then, said Hundy, I'll sit on the how over there and wait until the conquering hero comes back. I'll count a hundred, and then, and then go home like a wise lad to thy mother, and say Thorstein is coming to-morrow with news, and a great fish out of Thorstein's mere, for it will be none of Hundy's. Hundy's how is here, Thorstein's mere is nowhere. And indeed afterwards the story says that Hundy lived hard by, and was in the end buried on that how. But that is still to tell. Said he, A willful beast must gang his own gate, and I'll not mar sport nor splash thy mare to frighten thy whales. Come, Thorstein, don't be a fool. Turn back with me now, or rue it. Neither, dear lad, and don't anger me, but hie thy ways home and bid them not worry. Happen I'll light on my journey's end sooner than we think for. Happen thou light on mischief sooner than thou think's for. Come along, I say, go along i say we can't miss the road for it's down bank for thee and up bank for me to the end nay that's an ill speech said hundy for parting well then home for thee and away in the wide world for me for evermore will that suit nor that either i wish thee luck and thy big fish and i'll forset the scolding that awaits thee and have thy breakfast kept warm for yon bag of meal will be gone before to-morrow if i know aught good lad then we part friends, and Hundi turned and slid down the bank and splashed downstream, for he was always an easy-going lad. But Thorstein toiled on as before, and found his work no less at first, for he had to win his way up Lowick force, and through the swamps at its head. But then he saw at last, rising above the trees, a crest and a cone of high rugged fells, distant indeed, but not a mere blue line as he had seen them from the heights of Greenodd the afternoon sun threw its lights and shadows on the great scars of dowcrags, and the rocks of the Coniston old man stood out bold in the blue air. The lad's heart leapt up, and he shouted as he plunged again in the rapids that swirled beneath the wild steeps on his right, and the long dark slopes of Blawith the blue wood on the other side. By and by he was lost again in the crooked ravine where the Nibthwaite mills now stand, where the water narrowed to half its former breadth, and slid over ranks of rock, sloping downwards like carven tables, or a giant stairway sunken in a slough. But at the head of every force there were the great fells again in sight, and every time nearer and clearer, grander and more wonderful. At last he came to a sweet round tarn. It was bedded in the woods, and the likeness of every several branch lay upon the water. Thorstein shouted, but then he stayed. Was this the mere he had come so far to seek, and no more than this? He pressed forward round the miry edges of the tarn, and stumbled through the narrows of Arklid. Hitherto the stream had been ever narrower, and but for a few ledges and flats ever steeper, but here it suddenly became both still and deep, and opened out into breadth thorstein's heart beat hard when the wood thinned and the waterway broadened and the world grew brighter and lo beyond a great gleam of blue and a blaze of golden sky close beside him seal bushes fringed the shallow beds bulrushes stood in their ranks right out into the shallows and purple flags and white and yellow water-lilies lay along the edges of the lake on either hand Seeming the deep forest that clothed the sides of the valley, sharp, craggy spurs came down as as it were gateposts to the hall of hills and broke at their bases into long nabs, rounded here and rocky there running far out into the mere and tufted to the water edge with dark oaks and dark firs and between there were blue nooks of ripple reflecting the evening sky, and the wild ducks and teals swam through the ripple and the gulls floated above it and in lounge spots a hundred rings showed how the fish were rising thorstein climbed a how on the left and as he climbed the lake opened up before him beyond the nearer woods there was the deep of blue and the lonely island in the midst of it and from his feet away into the uttermost distance the huge fells tossing like the breakers on a stormy beach and rolling away and afar like the heaving waves of the sea and over them late sunset brooded in the north with the bars of level cloud purple and gold and fading rose-flecks overhead unwearied in his exultation the lad ran down to the shore again and stripping off hood and kirtle hose and shoes all stained and ragged with scrambling through brake and briar he waded out into deep water plunged beneath and swam sturdily through the calmness then he flagged at last and crept ashore and donned his clothes and looked about him for a safe night lair smiling as he thought of hundy's horror at sleeping like a squirrel he crept into the boughs of a great spreading oak and its thick leaves sheltered him like a thatched roof and hid him like the hangings of a shut-bed the level clouds drew together the purple colour darkened into black and a line of dusky light alone lingered in the north over Helvellyn, while he slept dreamless. Chapter 15 The Giant Gets His Fosterling Thorstein slept on in the tree long after the day had dawned through those level clouds, for a midsummer in Lakeland it is never black night. The sun only dives, as it were, behind a fell or two, and up again, and you can follow its track by the light that travels round the north, like the ripples which betray a diver in shoal-water. But this dawning was a dull one, for those level clouds had lowered and thickened, and turned to rain, and wind came up from the seaward as the gulls had foretold. And yet it mattered little to the lad in his oak-tree lair, except that no loud singing of birds awoke him, and the dimness of the light let him sleep on when he should have been well on his way homeward. For as to the plan of taking land and building a house and a boat, that was out of his mind now that Hundy was gone. To take land one must go round it with fire, and have witnesses to the deed. Some other day he would come back, now that he knew the road, and it was lonely waking there in the damp, hungry and stiff, with all that waste of wilderness to tread, before ever he saw home again. Back along the bank of Crake and round the little tarn went Thorstein, until he heard in the woods on his right hand shouting and the voices of men. At once his heart came into his mouth, and he stood stock still to listen. Could it be Hundy come back, and the Greenodd folk in search of him? What if they should go forward and find his mere, and he away and out of it all? What of the chance of a good bag of meal or a barley-cake somewhere about them, for he was both clemmed and starved? So he crept through the wood, and now and again the noise came louder. He followed it, slowly forcing his way among the deep fern and the brambles under the great trees. The voices were heard more plainly now, singing and shouting in a strange manner. It was not Hundy and the Greenard folk, but who? Thorstein was drawn by a great desire to know this secret of the woods, and to add one more marvel to the story he should tell at supper. On the top of a little how clear of trees but rocky and ferny like the wildest moorland there was a great heap of stones whether grave or cot it would be hard to tell and beside it in the fern sat huge men red-haired and red-bearded crane-legged and clumsy-handed and jolter-headed clothed rudely in skins and devouring great ugly gobbets of flesh from a roebuck they had killed and seemed to eat with little or no cooking thorstein gazed at them open-mouthed and astonished it was like a dream of the wonders he had pictured to himself but never fully hoped to set eyes on the branch he held by snapped and forthwith there was a terrible shout and a crash on his head and he seemed as in a dream to be falling down a dark pit then it was all light grey light and no green gloom of the woods and beneath him the red ling blossom fled away as he was carried by someone or something swiftly over the wide moor. He began to know that he was weary, and in a great pain of his head, and at every stride of his bearer he was jerked so that it hurt him. He kicked and struggled. The huge red man put him into the middle of a deep heather tuft, and set himself down to look at the lad as a cat watches a mouse. Then Thorstein rose on his knees and tried to scramble away, But the giant man just reached out and gave him a great bat with his hand that sent him heels overhead, scratching his face in the heather. Then the same thing happened again, and the third time Thorstein plucked himself together and flew at the giant, snatching out his knife, and minded in his rage to stick it in anywhere or anyhow. But the giant never moved off the stone where he sat. He just caught the knife in one hand, and with the other crushed the lad down. He looked at the knife long and curiously, then he nodded and laughed to himself. Then he looked at Thorstein where he lay on his back, kicking up the ling blossoms. and then he waved the knife as if to draw it over Thorstein's throat. Thorstein shut his eyes and his mouth as tightly as he could. The cold knife cut his neck a little, and the blood came. Thorstein waited to be killed, the rain pattered on his eyelids, and when he opened them again half-blinded, but not with tears, the giant was looking at the knife-handle and the pattern on its blade, and nodding to himself. Then he picked up the lad under one arm, and strode off through the heather. Chapter 16 The Fell Folk's Home Beyond the heather was the giant's home on the fell between Blawith and Broughton, you may find the spot even nowadays with little searching if you make for a farm called Heathwaite and up behind it to the bracken beds between Kirkby Moor and Blawith Knot. There among the borons which the mowers have heaped of autumns to clear the land for their lays there is a deal of other borons, and older ones that no man minds the building of, though yearly work on the land keeps them up so to say. You can see that they are ruins of a kind of homestead with its little garths and greater intakes on a ridge of fell on one hand there are the waste wet mosses of the moor and on the other hand far below the great flats of woodlands dotted with old farmsteads and thwaites and surrounded by the tossing rocky range of Dunedale fells from the coniston old man on the right hand away down to black coombe and the clittering sea in a high place like this people might live for many a long year unseen and unknown of their neighbours in the dales and if they were hunters and robbers no doubt they could pick up a living of a sort even now but in old times when the land was waste it was as good a place as could be for the home of wild half-savage fell folk the ground is not so high as to be bitterly cold in winter and at a time when there were trees in plenty where now is only fern or heather they could find cosy shelter down in the valley at that time everything was smothered up in wild wood or uninhabitable for swamps and dampness except where the ground had been cleared and drained by the hand of man but high on the moors the ground drained itself so that both for health and wealth it was the moor that was the chosen home of the earliest dwellers among the mountains and their children lived on in old places here and there even after newcomers have begun to make their farms and villages where we see them nowadays. Here at Heathwaite Fell you can see the walls of their buildings, and even in little corners, what may be chambers or storehouses or fire-spots or what not, curiously built of great stones, but all quite different from the farm buildings of our own people, and plainly the relics of an earlier race. Beside these homesteads there is one heap that is round and hollow in the midst, with a spot for a doorway, and well built within and without. Though the top of it is all fallen in, one can see that it might have been a hut shaped like a beehive, and roofed over with stone walling like those picked houses they tell of in other parts. This would be high enough inside for a big man to stand up in, and broad enough for him to lie at length, and all about the place there are the remains of huts, ruder and more ancient than even this, though not of the kind that were made in the earliest ages of all, when folk used only stone tools. These show some knowledge of walling, and yet among them is plenty of graves where the fell folk doubtless lie buried. At one end of this settlement, as they call it, there is a great barrow in which folk digging found burnt bones, and you can see the tall stone that stood at the head still standing there. They call this place the Giant's Grave, And old neighbours tell that it is the burial-place of the last of the giants who dwelt in that moorland village, and that he was shot with an arrow on that very fell-side, and so was killed, and his race ended. Well, when the big red man strode off through the heather and the ragged birches of the moor with Thorstein under his arm, this was the spot he came to. He marched in at the gate of the intake and up to the homestead through cattle folds with little cows of the old northern breed and rough mountain goats grazing between the walls and through patches of kale and rye by the side of the tarn which lies blue and clear in the midst of the place there in the evening sunshine among the huts would be a dozen or so of women and children dirty and half naked both the old hags and the little goblins they had four posts set upright in the earth, and a skin stretched over them in which was seething upon a fire of sticks, a mess of flesh in its own broth. Some were making ready for the evening's feast, and some were cobbling skins together, but for the most part they were a set of idle do-noughts, to reckon by the filth and hugger-mugger in which they lived. They raised a screech when Thorstein was brought in and cast on the ground and set upon him to stare at him and pull him about, until what with the raggedness of his torn clothes and their handling, he was mother naked, and not a little ashamed of his plight and of his white skin. Not that the fell folk were blackamoors, but they were sunburnt with going half naked and grimy with dirt. So there he sat, part covered with litter and bracken, which he pulled over himself, and he brazened it out as well as he could. End of part 6